Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Friends, have you ever sat down to watch a Civil War movie or TV miniseries only to notice historical inaccuracies in uniforms, speech, or events, trivial to others but monstrous in your sight? And after you've driven your companions out of the room by commenting on each and every one of these, did you find yourself wondering about the deeper mix of history and fiction behind the show? If you felt that way while watching Mercy Street, the PBS miniseries about life, death, and romance in a Civil War hospital, you're in the right place. Tonight we'll talk with Dr. Pamela Toller, author of the series' companion book, The Heroines of Mercy Street, The Real Nurses of the Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from our traditional home, of Civil War Talk Radio on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system. But I'm not speaking for the system nor for the third floor Brewster Building, History Department, ECU, or anybody else, just myself. And our guest will do the same, speak only for herself tonight, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it's our second show of the year 2017. Hope everyone is off to a good start in the new year. This is on the Chinese calendar, the year of a thousand Facebook likes, in which uh, everyone is urged to go to the Impediments of War Facebook page and like the page, showing your support for Civil War Talk Radio in a environmentally friendly and inexpensive fashion. We are now up to 730 likes 
And uh, the goal, as I said, 1,000 for the year. We'll see if we can get there. Uh, nothing will be accomplished by that. Just gratifying to me, but I, I hope we could all uh, pitch in on that. Here on campus, it's the usual uh, round of things in a new semester. I'm not teaching anything this semester. Very unusual. I have an administrative appointment instead. But the the uh, the normal bureaucracy never stops. For example, every five years, the departments of the College of Arts and Sciences undergo post-tenure review. Review uh, of, of those of us who have tenure. Theoretically, uh, with tenure, we could put our feet up on our desks and never do another lick of work and suck the taxpayers dry of their money. In reality, nobody does that. Uh, I'm here at seven and I can find there's other people still in the office doing things. So uh, it's it, it's not really necessary to check up on us to make sure we're uh, not doing anything. There's always some tenured deadwood, I suppose, in most departments at some point, but we don't have any at the moment. Anyway, we get reviewed uh, after tenure, just, just to be sure, every five years. But then the college decided to do it on a rolling basis, not all the departments every five years. The committee that made this decision has a few associate deans. And by the sheerest coincidence, the departments those deans are from don't have to do this until the five years are up. But the rolling cycle starts this year. And who goes first? The history department. So even though we just did this three years ago, we're doing it again this year. Uh, accountability is a good idea and all that, but they're going to look at the past three years. I say they, that means a committee of other tenured professors. The purpose of this ultimately is to uh, drive a thin wedge into the whole concept of tenure because it just drives administrators crazy not to be able to exert power over people who know more about uh, their fields than anyone else. But that's the very nature of a university. The people in the who teach surgery over at the medical school, I hope, know more about surgery than anyone else, and no one else is qualified to judge them. And likewise uh, with us here in history. But it's the desire of every administrator to judge everyone underneath them. So uh, tenure just drives those people crazy, even though they were tenured professors at one time. Uh, and still are. They, they've just gone over to the dark side. Well, enough uh, uh, academic kvetching. There's good news from North Carolina this week. Uh, even even from North Carolina, the land of uh, HB2 and other craziness, once in a while something is done right. And in this case, it's the North Carolina Civil War Center. The uh, Cumberland County Board of Commissioners yesterday approved $7.5 million commitment to match that of the Fayetteville City Council. So this project to build a state-of-the-art Civil War museum in the state is on track. Uh, with these two commitments, the foundation behind this is going to seek $30 million in funding from the state and raise $20 million in private funds. I think they're half or a third of the way to that already. And it is good to see some effort to do something that will tell the story of the Civil War in North Carolina in a comprehensive and uh, balanced and uh, really uh, 
broad fashion. And I say this, I, I'm interested myself. I'm on the board of advisors for this. I think everybody with a pulse and an interest in the Civil War in North Carolina has been asked to be on the board, and I'm happy to be one of those. And I, I think the people running this effort really have a good direction in mind and have been looking for a lot of academic support. So it's a great project, and, and uh, if all goes well in 2020, this museum will actually open. We'll, we'll see if it happens that fast, but once in a while, it's some good news and worth sharing. If you're in the mood to share, consider donating to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund or specifically to the uh, David Long uh, Preservation Fund. There's no official name for that. I just made it up. But as I mentioned in previous weeks, we've got a stack of copies of uh, the late Dr. Long's excellent book on the re-election of Abraham Lincoln in 1864. It's called The Jewel of Liberty. And for a $25 donation to Civil War Talk Radio, or donation of any size, uh, I will turn around and send that $25 to the Civil War Trust uh, in David's name, and I'll send you a copy of his book. So everybody gets something. Still not tax deductible, but uh, consider that. And... uh, Many other things, the Stephen Ambrose Tour comes up in May. I'll tell you about it more next week. You've heard about it last week. New shows are on the schedule starting tonight. Next week, Matt Hulbert, old friend, returns to the show to talk about how Civil War bushwhackers turned into gunslingers in the post-war American West. Then we've got some uh, new and old folks uh, coming back to the show or visiting for the first time in February. On February 1st, Hampton Newsom, author of Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond-Petersburg Campaign, October 1864, will be with us. I've been looking forward to this for some time. It uh, should be an interesting conversation. On February 8th, George Rabel returns to the show. His new or new-ish book is called Damn Yankees, with an exclamation point. Uh, I'll leave you to figure out what that's about, but uh, it should be interesting. February 15th, uh, just got on the calendar today, Chuck Rosh, Rash, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I'll have to ask him, R-A-A-S-C-H, uh, has written a book called Imperfect Union, A Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, Chuck is a reporter, the book involves the media and war and other things. And then on February 22nd, rounding out the month, Christopher Phillips with The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. That book was a listener suggestion on the webpage. Thank you for suggesting it and delighted to have Professor Phillips joining us. You can buy all these books. Uh, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and click on a link to Amazon from there and the a penny or two will trickle through to the website where Mark Gaffney keeps us informed. So please consider doing that as well. And you can get all the books there, including tonight's book, Heroines of Mercy Street, The Real Nurses of the Civil War, by Pamela D. Toller, Ph.D. It is the companion to the Mercy Street series on PBS, forward by Ridley Scott, it says. I don't know who Ridley Scott is. I'll have to ask. No, I really do. Uh but let's find out. Let's talk to Dr. Toller. Uh, Dr. Toller, are you there? I think I'm here. Can you I hear, hear me? you now. I Wonderful. certainly can. 
Wonderful. Welcome, welcome Good to, to the be show. Here. Good so, to be here. the uh, first thing I wanted to ask you was uh, looking at uh, on, on the cover, Pamela D. Toller, PhD. Uh, I go to your website uh, to see what I can learn, and discover that you are indeed a. Uh, PhD, Doctor of Philosophy and History, with uh, a focus on their degree in the history of the Indian subcontinent, strong subfields on European imperialism and Islam. So, how do we get from there to Mercy Street? Well, in some ways, it's going back to my historical roots. I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, outside of the Wilson's Creek battlefield, and Mm -hmm. was, um, you know, the kind of nerdy high school kid who spent most of their weekends at the Historical Society or on the battlefield. And so you know, my, my earliest interest in history was the American Civil War and particularly women who were involved in the American Civil War. So when PBS was looking for a writer and a publishing professional who'd worked with me on another book suggested my name and they asked if I would be interested, I... Um, I said, sure, <laughs> even though it meant moving a little out of my academic field, a lot out of my academic field. Um, but it was a delight to be back in that world. So, so looking at your range of publications, uh, I, I teach my public history students about the option to be a, uh, a, a historical consultant or a contract historian, someone who works in widely different fields, depending on what the client's needs are. And uh, some of the students are horrified by the idea, and some just love it. Uh, it sounds like that's you, 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 you have, as a freelance writer, that's the kind of thing you do. Absolutely. That's very much what I do. At some point, not my field becomes kind of a meaningless statement. Um, the most recent piece I wrote was about the um, Peninsular War and the Napoleonic period and about Goya's um, art related to that war. So I end up being pretty much in all over the map in time and in space. Um, and after a while, it begins to feel not so odd because the times and places hook together. The fields are kind of artificial. Um, it, it, we, for, it, we forget no, that. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> um, we do. I, the, the, and the, the interconnections you find must be interesting. They always are, and sometimes they are totally unexpected. Um, so, you know, one of the things, again, go ahead, I'm sorry. I can't, I, no, that's fine, please. So, the, what I find intriguing about this is the contrast with academia, where you, you get into a specialty and, and go further and further until you know more and more about less and less, uh, and eventually know everything about nothing, is the classic historical academic path mm-hmm. uh, do you ever do you go to conferences do you do you see yourself as part of the academic historical world um, uh, I do or, occasionally or? go to conferences I certainly remain um, in touch with many many academic writers so I'm part of the, the academic world in that sense um, mm-hmm. And at any given point, I'm, in, I'm working on a passion project of my own that requires doing deep academic research, um, though 
because of the way my brain works, it often ends up being one of these big global projects. So, yeah, I do still see myself as an academically trained historian, even though I am working in a uh, public marketplace. And, you know, at some level, that means I get to be an evangelist for history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel really strongly that as a society, we need to hear the stories that most students get in high school history classes, so that you're getting the history of other parts of the world, you're getting history from the other side of the battlefield, or the gender line, or the color bar. Um, And by reaching out to a popular audience and reminding them how exciting and accessible history can be, I think I open up the door for people coming to academic historians. Well, certainly that, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more that there's a need for, for academically trained historians to, uh, to profess more broadly than just in the classroom and to, to try to communicate with general audiences. One way most people, many people, if not most, get whatever history they do get is through uh, various forms of media, movies and television in particular, mm-hmm. and that brings us to the... the uh, the miniseries Heroines of Mercy Street. This started on PBS last year, about this time, uh, had a first season, and is about to debut its second season uh, next week, at the end of January 2017. Mm-hmm. And I want we're going to take a short break, step away for just a minute or two. We'll come back and ask you about uh, fact and fiction and, and your uh, what really went on on uh, Mercy Street in. Uh, or it's it's historical analog during the actual Civil War. So we'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. Our guest tonight, Pamela D. Toller, author of Heroines of Mercy Street, The Real Nurses of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Music. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dr. Pamela Toller, author of Heroines of Mercy Street, The Real Nurses of the Civil War. Uh, Pam, for, for people who have... Uh, Pamela, do you go by Pam? Is that too Yeah, I go by informal? Pamela for the most part, but that's fine. Right. I, I apologize for, for bleeping in there. Uh, uh, Pamela, tell me about... Uh, uh, for listeners who haven't seen the show, uh, what is the heroines of Mercy Street? Or, or what is Mercy Street, the show? Let's start with that. Um, well, Mercy Street is a Civil War drama on PBS, obviously, set in a real hospital, which was Mansion Street Hospital in Alexandria, Virginia. And it's very much you know, in the, the vein of most historical dramas in that it follows a cast of, an an ensemble cast of characters through personal dramas set against the larger context of the Civil War. Um, And they've made the interesting choice to base a number of the characters on figures who actually existed. Um, The main character, Mary Finney, is drawn very much from the memoir of, of a nurse who was actually at Mansion House Hospital named Mary Finney von Olnhausen. Um, some of the other characters are based less closely on the people that they um, used the historical name and details of. Um, Frank Stringfellow, who was a pretty well-known Southern spy, um, gets turned into a little bit of a psychopathic killer in a way that I think is pretty unfair to the historical Frank Stringfellow, though he certainly makes for interesting theater on the television program. So how how much, if, if a, a listener to this program who has read uh, a fair amount about the war and is, is interested in, in Civil War nonfiction comes across and watches this, is there a cringe factor, or, or how do you feel about how how well the show did? There are a couple of cringe factors, um, though remarkably few. Um, hmm. I think they do very well on the medicine end of it, um, and I will admit I am not someone who will look and say, no, 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 those are the wrong buttons. Um, uh-huh. you know, details, details of uniform will escape me. Um, details of women's dress, less so, and I think they've done a pretty good job on that, though um, there was one walking wedding cake of a dress that, that I understood why they chose for dramatic purposes that might not have been quite accurate. But they do a really good job for the medicine, and they do a very good job of establishing varying points of view about the war, about slavery, about the politics, um, in really complicated, unbelievable ways. 
What what about the role of, of nurses in general? One of the themes that runs through your book is the constant resistance that female nurses encountered from uh, from men in in hospitals in the army. Uh, could you talk about that? Sure. Um, it, it's it was a very real thing. Um, doctors did not want female nurses. The army had never used female nurses. And at the time, nursing really wasn't a profession yet. So bringing in these women who were volunteers who didn't really know anything and were learning on the job was deeply resisted by the military, particularly because they end up, they're an anomaly in a system that has, that is a system. There's a hierarchy and they don't really fit in it. They're kind of off to one side, and many of them consequently really feel like they don't have to follow the rules, um, which, you know, bureaucracies don't deal very well with that. So when you add fundamental society-wide sexual assumptions about what's appropriate for women to do, and then you add this total disruption that women cause to the system, there's a lot of hostility. There's a lot of resentment. Um, the show really deals with that pretty well, I must say. I, you make the the point that military hospitals are themselves anomalous within the military structure. The chief surgeon runs the hospital and reports directly up to the surgeon general and right. doesn't doesn't report to the local military commander. Mm-hmm. So you've got a local local general trying to issue orders to a hospital, and the doctor says, I don't report to you. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm out, outside the system. And then you've got the volunteers who are volunteers, and they're not getting paid, so they say, I don't have to I don't actually, <laughs> I don't report to you either. And then That's on top right. of that, you have women and men. Uh, mm-hmm. So these, well, these female nurses are in a uh, really strange place. They're in a really strange place. And then you add to that that when they get there, I mean, most of them have some sort of experience of nursing at a domestic level. They've taken mm-hmm. care of ailing family members. They've even dealt with some things that we would find gruesome and hard to imagine taking care of at home. But they're not prepared for what they are exposed to at first. And in a lot of their diaries and memoirs and letters, they tell stories of passing out on their first day on the job. Um, and, you know, the one woman who's in, the, um, in one of the Confederate hospitals talks about almost fainting, reeling away to head toward the door so she won't faint, and tripping over a pile of amputated arms and legs. It, that takes a while to get used to. <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, you, you say the nurses are not trained. Was what, was anybody trained in medicine? What, what's this uh, well, in the era of know, the Civil War? The um, I mean, certainly no female nurses were trained. That would, you were barely getting training for that in England with um, Florence Nightingale. You know, doctors. Medical education in the United States was at a low. It had actually taken a step back in the first years of the 19th century. And so a lot of the doctors who 
volunteered and went to war actually weren't any better trained for what they faced than the nurses were. Most of them had never done any surgery. They certainly didn't have training in um, battlefield medicine. The doctors who were actually a formal, who were career doctors in the military were a different matter. They actually were probably some of the best trained doctors in the United States at the time. But most of the volunteer doctors were not trained for what they had to deal with. In fact, there is um, a story. One of the men whose memoirs I read was a medical student who ended up coming as an assistant surgeon to a regiment. And during Bull Run, he discovered that the man who he was supposedly assisting had, in fact, never done surgery before and really didn't have a very good feel for the anatomy of I forget if it was an arm or a leg, so that basically this medical student was coaching the man through the amputation as he did it, um, which all I can say is it can't have been very reassuring for the patient. Um, it's a so. horrifying uh, image. The well, What kind of things did nurses actually do? You mentioned that, that women, uh, 19th century middle class women, have experience in... in uh, taking care of family members when they're ill and, and comforting them and feeding and perhaps bathing them. Uh, is this what's expected of military nurses? Is there, what else do they, do they actually perform procedures? Um, now and then one would perform a procedure, but what the, the, the real medical skill that a lot of them learned was bandaging wounds and then changing those bandages. And that was really a much more complicated process than we tend to think of. It wasn't just taking one bandage off and putting another one on. You often had to um, deal with um, packing a wound with either cotton lint or with oakum. Um, And then when you changed it, you had to get that off of the raw wound before you could put a fresh bandage and a fresh dressing on. the other thing they end up having to do, I mean, you're, you're in a Victorian period, and yet women are having to bathe strange men. They're having to clean faces that have been half shut off. They're having to clean amputated stumps. They are dealing with catheters, which I wouldn't have even realized before I started this that catheters were a possibility in mid-19th century medicine, but in fact, so they were dealing with catheters, they're dealing with bedpans, um, they're dealing with a lot that they wouldn't have necessarily had to at home, or on a scale that they wouldn't have had to at home. So, when one pictures mid-19th century women, you imagine them uh, middle and upper middle class women in the big hoop skirts and elaborate bonnets. Uh, obviously, that's not practical for, for nurses. How did they, what did they wear? Um, they wore narrower skirts, for one thing, slightly shorter. Um, they wanted them in as dark a color as they could get because they got pretty gross. And the thing they all really needed was a big apron with lots of pockets. But, you know, th- this isn't... They're not wearing uniforms, that's for sure. There's a picture that goes around that shows up online sometimes. It shows up in a lot of books of women that are claimed to be Civil War nurses that have these puffy white hats and these puffy sleeves and this white apron. 
um, they were not nurses, and no one would have worn a white dress. So they're wearing narrower skirts. They're wearing something that's far more like what a housemaid would have worn, um, because the the big hoop skirts just weren't practical. And and there's a story that keeps getting repeated, but I can't find an original source for it. So it may be the Civil War equivalent of urban legend of mm-hmm. a woman who was visiting a hospital and her crinoline caught a man's bandage and tore it off and he bled to death before anyone noticed. Ah. So don't wear, don't wear the big skirt to visit. Don't wear the uh, big skirt if you're going to the hospital. Well, so who are these women? You mentioned uh, uh, some names uh, on, on whom the characters are based in the Mercy mm-hmm. Street series. Uh, you uh, read their memoirs and so on. Are these largely middle class women? Uh, who who volunteers to serve? You know, just it was like it was a demographic slice of America at the time, because mm. you ended up getting women coming from different paths. You get New York socialites who are largely working for the United States Sanitary Commission. You get farm wives who follow their husbands to the war and get a, manage to get themselves assigned to their regiment. You get teenage girls, you get grandmothers, you get free African-Americans, you get escaped slaves. But it is true, a solid core of them were sort of middle-aged, middle-class women from the class that I think of as the reformers, the, that educated northern group that tended to be abolitionists later were involved in the temperance movement. Um, but a little bit of everybody. What? I mean, one of my favorites was a cobbler's daughter from Maine who just reinvented herself time and again over the course of her life. What about uh, um, the, the, when when people get the snapshot of Civil War nurses, Clara Barton always shows up. Uh, mm-hmm. And you mention her in your book, but uh, Dorothy Dix is a much more important figure uh, as you describe her. Uh, what was her role in making Civil War nursing possible? Well, in some ways, she started the well. In some ways, and she started the official corps, and she was responsible for recruiting more nurses than any single person in the war. Um, About 15% of the women who nursed were part of the official Army Nursing Corps. And Dix, right after Sumter fell, got on the train and went straight to Washington and volunteered herself to form form this corps. Um, In some way, she, she had a past history as a reformer, and as a public policy wonk, 19th century style, and had a real track record for getting things done. So people assumed she would be fabulous at running this. Um, The only real exception to that was Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first woman doctor um, in, certainly in America, probably in Europe, who um, complained that Dix had just been appointed Mettler General, um, she, um, Dix was wonderful at inspiring people. She wasn't very good at running things, and she basically didn't try to treat the core as an organization. 
Um, she basically treated it as a large personal network. But she was responsible for thousands of women who served as nurses. One of the things whenever you read about Dix and her role is the uh, uh, the statement that she insisted only plain-looking women could be nurses so they would avoid uh, I don't know, distracting the doctors or the patients. Uh, mm-hmm. But but you claim that's not quite accurate? It's not quite accurate. She wanted them to be plain in dress and style rather than, she never says they have to be personally homely. Um, now, admittedly, a fair number of people, even at the time, took it as needing to be personally homely. And she certainly wanted there to be no no sense that her nurses were there manhunting. And she did turn people away who were too young. So I, I think the combination of wanting plain clothing and also insisting that her nurses be at least 30 years old contributes to this sense that they needed to be personally plain. But in fact, uh, you know, there were some women who were younger who did find their way in, uh, were able to volunteer or, or get involved. So Absolutely. it was not limited to that. Now, on the, uh, I, I will be uh, upfront and say I have not watched the Mercy Street series. I come home from a day of doing Civil War studies, and someone says, hey, let's watch Civil War. And I think, no, I'm watching hockey. <laughs> uh, I understand entirely. I'm, I watch Jeopardy. Uh, but uh, but I did look at the, the PBS website. I watched uh, previews and trailers and all the bits and, and pieces there. And there's, if the show is accurate, there is a lot of man hunting or woman hunting or uh, uh, personal relationships forming uh, a lot of very attractive doctors and, and nurses uh, uh, hooking up, as the young people say today. We're going to take another short bra- break, and I'm going to ask you if there's any historical uh precedent for that, or if the show is just doing what all television shows do and putting what what the viewer wants to see when they show uh, nurses and doctors amorously involved in Mercy Street. We'll find out the answer to that question when we come back in just a moment. Our guest tonight, Pamela D. Toller, author of Heroines of Mercy Street, The Real Nurses of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. 
The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Pamela D. Toller, author of Heroines of Mercy Street, The Real Nurses of the Civil War. We've been talking about the uh, the television miniseries Mercy Street on PBS. Its second season begins uh, next Sunday. That's the uh, almost the last Sunday of the month of January 2017 and began in 2016 showing the uh, life and times of a uh, an actual Civil War hospital, the Mansion House uh, Hotel converted to a hospital in Alexandria, Virginia. That's the basis for the, the show. And I left with the question, uh, along with the stench of badly dressed amputations, was romance also in the air, uh, as it appears to be uh, in the TV series? Did nurses and patients ever actually form relationships in spite of what uh, Dorothy Dix and others insisted on? They did. Um, Not to the extent that the television show might suggest, but... Mm -hmm. um, Nurses did fall in love with their patients. Some of them married their patients. Um, one of the two nurses whose memoirs are sort of the um, backbone on which I hung the stories in the book, in fact, married a patient while he was still in the hospital, kept it secret, and then when Dorothea Dix found out, was forced to leave the service. Mm-hmm. Um, a number, uh, and there was one nursing nun who not only left the service but left her order, to marry one of her patients. But the numbers are really remarkably small, um, or at least the numbers that you can find mm-hmm. data for. Um, there were a handful of younger women from, again, through the United States Sanitary Commission, which is where many of the younger women ended up, um, who ended up marrying doctors that they met while they were nurses, but marrying them after the war was over. Um, Realistically, it's not a very romantic situation to be in no. when you read. <laughs> you know, you're reading their memoirs, and they're tired, and they're dirty, and it smells, even by 19th century standards. And romance isn't in the air a whole lot, but but there are some elements of that, and there were certainly contemporary fears that young women who nursed would be exposing themselves 
to sexual advances from doctors and from patients. Um, but it seems to have been more more a fear than a reality. One of the ways that that was addressed that you described that I found very interesting and, and hadn't really read about before was uh, during the Peninsula Campaign in 1862 in Virginia, as McClellan's troops are marching slowly up the peninsula toward Richmond, the Union Army employs a series of steamboats to bring wounded back down the York River, uh, or later James River, back to Fort Monroe, uh, away from the front line. And initially, volunteer nurses were used to uh, serve on those boats with the idea that this would be a, a safer, cleaner place than being right up at the front lines. It, I, I had not read about the service of nurses on these transport uh, boats, yeah. but it didn't work out as planned. No, it didn't. They were in more danger. They, they were closer to the front than mm-hmm. women in any of the standard military hospitals. And the the boats were just floating sewers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you ended up with a group of upper middle class and elite women as nurses on those ships whose families thought that it would be a safer place for them to be. Um, in fact, for many of them, it turned out to be a great adventure. They come out of it um, just transformed in their ability to maneuver the system and to do what needs to be done. I mean, they developed what one of them called a, a habit of kleptomania, that whenever they ended up near a camp or near a ship that was going back, they would basically storm it and grab everything that they thought might be of use to their patients. Um, yeah, it was not so, a very sheltered environment. But they, they're, they're it's sort of like a... I guess MASH is what I thought of. Uh, this, yes. <laughs> it's using this mobile technology. The steamboat is the, the latest thing in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And it's bringing the wounded off uh, from the front lines to the back. And these women are aboard as soon as a, a huge load of wounded men comes aboard. They're trying to sort them out and, and give them what care they can. And they get, Absolutely. get them back, dump them off, and get another load and back to work. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things you mentioned is that, that what distinguishes women, uh, female nurses in the Civil War from male doctors, uh, it, in many cases, was their attitude toward patients, that the women took a more personal interest, felt it was, whether they thought it was better for the health or just uh, their 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 environment and upbringing, but they they wanted to treat uh, patients as individuals, learn their names, uh, uh, take, mm-hmm. not treat them as, as simply a, a left upper arm amputation case. Right. Um, they felt very strongly about it and would often fight bitterly with doctors about it. On the, the transport ships, there were several of the women who just insisted that the first thing you had to do was find out the man's name. And if and put it on a piece of paper and pin it to his uniform so that if he died, someone knew who he was. Um, And doctors just objected horribly, saying, you're wasting valuable time. Um, And and it was a consistent argument every step of the way. Women were very concerned with treating soldiers as individuals. And 
and sometimes they became emotionally involved, not necessarily in a romantic way, but just would put everything they had into taking care of a specific individual. And that meant when they succeeded in keeping someone alive, they celebrated, but it also meant that when they didn't, they grieved. Um, partially yeah, one because, of the, go ahead. Partially just because the, the, the nature of their involvement with patients was different. It was more intimate, other than that MASH-like moment when you've got incoming, when it was chaos mm-hmm. for everyone. After that, they have a much slower pace. They're not in a frantic, you know, how many... They're not in a conveyor belt of, of amputations or of taking care of wounds immediately. Um, and it, it makes for a different relationship. Now, one of the other struggles that you described that the, the nurses fought with, not so much doctors, but the, the administrators, the, the hospital stewards who dealt with the logistics of the place, was, uh, was a battle over food. That, that mm-hmm. uh, talk about that. That was uh, depressing to read of the level of corruption. The level of corruption was really amazing. You, the nurses were repeatedly fighting to make sure that men got what they were supposed to get. I mean, the, the quality of the food was one issue, and they complained about that horribly. But they also found that hospital stewards were often selling off part of the rations. Um, in one case, the stewards were drying used coffee grounds, mixing them with something that wasn't coffee, reusing those grounds and selling off fresh beans. And that came to light because one of the nurses reported to her supervisor that the coffee was just way too weak and she didn't understand what the problem was. This was one of the, you know, finding, dealing with these corruption cases was one of the times in which women's sort of unwillingness to be part of the hierarchy worked to their advantage in being able to help corruption because they would often just step around the system that if their first attempt at getting the next person up the line to deal with it didn't help. They'd just go to whoever they knew. And in one case, Hannah Ropes, who was a Union House hospital in Washington, went straight to Stanton when she wasn't getting getting any satisfaction from the chief surgeon of the hospital in trying to deal with these corruption issues. Um, but you know, they were stealing from the the luxury boxes that the ladies' aid societies would take. There would be you know, theft of meat. There would be theft of coffee. There would be anything that was of value on the black market. There would be somebody willing to steal. And the nurses, because, as you pointed out, some of them are volunteers from, from uh, upper-class families, they might actually know Secretary of War Stanton or know someone who knows him or know someone right. who knows the president and they could uh, work around the uh, the corrupt mm-hmm. hospital administrators and go right to the top. Right. Now, with all this, uh, the, the, the grimmest part of the story is that, as, as you point out, and I think everyone listening to the show is fully aware, disease is more dangerous than, than battle wounds in the Civil War. More men die from disease than from uh, from 
from combat wounds. And nurses are not exempt from this. They are they're around disease, and no one understands the germ theory fully at this point. So uh, uh, the nurses are in danger. They are in danger, and in some ways they are almost in more danger than the men they take care of because they are constantly exposed, and when someone gets something, she was already so worn down from taking care of people who, other people, that, you know, if you got sick, many of them died. Um, it was just that simple. <laughs> and, and again, reading your book, as you say, the story is based on uh, memoirs of a number of people and uh, or letters, other primary sources, and uh, I'll leave, I won't issue any spoilers, uh, urge listeners to get a copy of Heroines of Mercy Street and find out, but there are some people who you describe uh, in some detail and and they don't make it. Uh, they don't survive uh, to the they end of the war. They don't survive. Not all of them survive to the end of the war. And a couple of them survive against all odds. And Mary Finney, who is, Mary Finney von Olmhausen, who is the main woman whose story I follow, Mm-hmm. gets very ill twice, um, both times with things that, that were deadly, and yet yet manages to survive and to nurse through the end of the war. Gee, her story is a fascinating one. Uh, I, I can see how this could easily end up being a miniseries uh, based on the things she does. Uh, mm-hmm. We have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, what about the... Does this experience of nursing, uh, of, of breaking gender barriers and, and creating a new role for women in society, does this carry on into the post-war world, do you think? Absolutely. And it does it in two really important ways. One is that because these women have stepped across the borders of what they could expect to do, and because they've developed these new skills, they go on, many of them, to be reformers of all types. So that if you look at any of the reform movements in the 30 to 40 years after the Civil War, you often find a former Civil War nurse right in the middle of things. But the other difference is that because of what they did, nursing became recognized as a respectable job for a woman, and in fact, it's the impact of the women who nursed in the Civil War and their changing um, abilities that leads to the development of nursing as a skilled profession. The American Medical Association called for the development of nursing schools three years after the end of the war, and they were very clear that it was because of the Civil War nurses. Well, it is a, a, a great story, uh, teaching here at East Carolina University, where we produce more nurses than any other institution in the state. Uh, it, it was fascinating to learn these details about the origins of the profession in the United States. And listeners, you will be uh, entertained and enlightened by heroines of Mercy Street, the real nurses of the Civil War, by our guest tonight, Pamela Toller. Uh, You may enjoy the show as well. I think I'm going to have to try watching it now, uh, having read the book first. And it gives us a lot to do in in the the week ahead. Uh, (laughs) Pamela, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delight. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.